Welcome to the Petroleum Boogie. Welcome to the Gas Dance. Welcome to the end of the world, an apocalyptic wasteland, where Paul's conversation with Todd Robinson continues. All right, Todd, um, let's hear your number two. Not that this is a ranked list, but what, what's number two? All right, number two is uh, Matthew Yeager. You heard of him? Never heard of him. Fuck yes, I am winning today. Uh, Matthew two. Yeager is a um, he's a New York City caterer, Ooh. Um, and I met him last uh, year in uh, Portland at AWP. We'd both been published by a dozen nothing, which you've you've been featured in as well. Great little website. Uh, I never read him on a dozen nothing. I'm sorry, I failed, but he read it this. Re- reading and he like you he's such an incredible presence when he reads man like the words just spill out and they keep spilling and keep spilling and keep spilling walk poet walk with your head down dog shit a little dog but come on black spots (laughs) a spat out gum balloon bits a curled atm receipts purple thinness a rat there he goes tartan plaid suitcase with zipper broken leaves all of a type all down one side of a street, bicycle inner tube, long black deflated burnt sausage, what is not a dollar bill upon bending over, a roofing nail. On shingleless 44th Street, it's like finding a crab scuffling along on the top of Mount Monadnock. Walk, poet, walk with your head down, overhead projector, probably 50 years old, with a crack, a banana peel, thought of crap, reels of tape, hang tags, the shoes worn by men who work dressed as statues of liberty every tax season. It's not like that little oxycodone poem that's like 25 words um, at a glacial pace, man. It is a gush, and it's it's riveting. I mean, you just get swept away with it. Um, so I thought this is one of my sort of favorite readings of all time. And um, so I bought his book there, and uh, he's got one book called Like That. Um and it's got a great picture on the cover of his hand and, and a ball of foil on it. And one of the poems is about a ball of foil that he keeps adding foil to. And he's very much about just kind of average life, um, just kind of recording. I want to read a little bit of this poem, Tap Water, if I can. Please do. <clears throat> All right. These are the opening lines of Tap Water. When a woman enters your life, you can either change or not change. And by not change, one does not mean remain the same because that would be impossible. Say it turns out she doesn't drink tap water. What do you do? You either stop drinking tap water or you begin emphatically drinking tap water. I love tap water, you say. Its faint metallic odor stirs up all sorts of pleasant memories in me for some reason of summer camp. Of course you have no idea if this is true, but look, she is laughing. She's laughing in a way that says, tell me more. So you do. Out of your mouth comes an impromptu treatise on the virtues of tap water. And just like that, without really intending it, you become a committed drinker of tap water. And so down streets, you two stroll. She with her bottle of water, you with one of her old bottles of water filled back up with plain old tap water. Months pass. This scene repeats. There are leaves on the sidewalks, then snow on the sidewalks, then leaves again. And each time she fills back up a bottle with tap water for you and you tip it to your lips, squeezing the wrinkled plastic a little. It's like an additional puff of air blown on something drying until soon you're set. Just give him tap water, she says to a waiter. He likes it. And probably you do like it. I could go on. 
it's like a 400 line poem <laughs> hell yeah um yeah. i just googled this guy while you're talking and I, I i remember his reading and just to just to put it out there for the listeners a dozen nothing they put out they put out a poet every single month uh a decent sized selection of their work and it's a very cool magazine the two fellows that run it jeff circuit and pete miller both todd and i i feel comfortable saying think those dudes are fucking great uh they put on this reading in portland at a at a record store called was it music millennium was that the name of the place music millennium it was like a 30 person reading and it was great like i hate that type of reading but it was just all love it was all positive energy and it was such a fucking good reading. And Matthew Yeager specifically, I remember when he read, because I think he read before me, I remember thinking like, oh, fuck. Like this guy's, he's he's got the high energy thing and he's just like better at it than I am. God damn it. Like my whole, my whole gambit has been fucking superseded by Matthew motherfucking Yeager. Uh, but people still dug my reading, so I didn't feel uh, too dreaded about it later on. But I remember when he was reading, I was like, oh, this guy's got the power. And uh, I don't know if I have that type of power. And I was so so stoked on it. That's cool that you grabbed his book. And so, like, this is a awesome collection, you would say? Yeah. You know, it's 80 pages, and it's like four poems. They're just long That's as so shit. And um, they, you know, yeah, it just creates... I mean, you know, you just drift away. You drift far, far from shore. Mm-hmm. So um, he's got another one. I think he, I don't remember if he read from it, but it's called A Jar of Balloons or The Uncooked Rice. And it's just endless questions, Ooh. endless fucking questions. Like it starts, have you ever had a haircut so bad you cried? Ooh. When you open the drawer after having poured yourself a bowl of cereal, do you reach for a small or a large spoon? How conscious are you of your posture? Will you agree to let a lover use your toothbrush? Which chemical smells do you like, right? It just goes on and on and on and on. And they're the kind of questions, you know, you'd ask at a slumber party or something, right? I mean, Mm, mm, they're not really deep and yet they are. I mean, you know, they seem like they're focused on these kind of minutiae that we disregard. But what did Melville say? There is a certain significance in all things, else all things are little worth. And um, I think he reminds us of that, like this weird tap water affectation that wasn't an affectation. It was just a thing that becomes like the end all be all of the relationship and or these questions of how we make these decisions, how we organize our lives. Um, He just in language that is completely unpretentious, that is conversational somehow he cre- as you say high energy he just he imbues it with his own um je ne sais quoi <laughs> and uh it just takes you over man he's you're his poetry puppet man he's amazing yeah dude fuck yeah i i guess i have heard of him although like <laughs> when you said his name i i wasn't able to connect his name to his person but uh yeah i remember that dude's reading and I will say this to you, Todd, on my fucking website, paulhansonclark.com, I have posted an audio recording of that reading, almost the entire thing. I missed like the first little chunk of, I think, Jeff Alessandrelli's uh, reading, which was the first reading, but it is such a fucking great recording. I've listened to it like 12 times. It's just a great reading to listen to. 
Oh, um, amazing, dude. Any, I will... any final points you want to make, or should I zip into my number two? Zip, baby. We've been at it for an hour and a half, man, and there's more to come. We got, yeah, we got we to gotta get moving. I, I know, I know. Um, my number two is N.H. Pritchard. You ever heard of him? No. Um, he's something of a mystery to me. So this is another sort of Holly connection, but Holly taught this poet in the avant-garde poetry class that I mentioned earlier. And he's a, he's a black poet from the 60s, 70s, who was associated with a movement called Umbra, which I think was like a writer's workshop or something in New York, or maybe it was a magazine, or maybe it was both. And he's also like associated with a poet uh, named Ishmael Reed. I who, love Ishmael Reed. Yeah, Ishmael Reed's great. He was very, very important to me in my uh, early understanding of, like, let's have a more expansive view of what poetry is and who writes it. Uh, he has an anthology that he published that's just – I can't remember the title, but to me it was just essential. It was, like, going so far beyond the normal kind of scope of, like, this is the canon and creating a whole new canon. <laughs> The name of the anthology is From Totems to Hip Hop, a multicultural anthology of poetry across the Americas. Check it out. Very cool book. But uh, e- even within like kind of the Ishmael Reed universe, Pritchard is something of like an obscure figure. And so his, his, his two books, Echoes and The Matrix, they're both available on like a Utah website called like eclipse and over the years it's funny the website hasn't changed at all it's still this like low tech kind of like old school website but they've just added more and more really cool stuff and they have um facsimiles of these two pritchard books which is great because he uses all types of inventive uh spacing and whatnot in his presentation of his poems but the one thing that turned me on, it, so I, I took this class, avant-garde poetry, and I just was a little like, I thought I was better than it, you know? Like, I was like, this this poetry is weird. Like, it's it's not actually cool. It's kind of fake. Um, <laughs> but two things changed my mind. One was Holly was like, listen, man, I don't fucking care if you like this poetry or not. I have zero interest in your opinion of these poets. All I want you to do is to read the fucking shit and pay attention to what it makes you think and what it makes you feel and just report on that to me. Any uh, feeling that you have that you should like be judging these poets for how good they are, just get rid of it. I have no interest in it. And that was like one of the most sort of transformative bits of advice I've ever received. But um, Pritchard himself, this dude's work also was like unlocking to me where I was like, Maybe there's something to this like weird, crazy shit. And the poem specifically, like it's not even a poem. It's more like a sort of like visual art piece, but it's on page 129 of the matrix. And it is a letter a that takes up the entire page, but is, it is composed entirely of the letter Z. So it is an a made of Z's. And when I saw (laughs) that, it just like, it just like sparked my brain. I was just like, holy shit, man. This dude made a fucking A out of Z's. Like that's the craziest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. And it's such a like simple idea, yet it's so like striking. And um 
his his the book is just the matrix specifically is just filled with these kind of like crazy uh visual poems but it also has a lot of like really beautiful and haunting lyric poems too and i'll just read one quickly that i just randomly flipped to it's called mist place lifts mist above the barren stockless wearing fertile once now on a withered porch a woman sits weeping scarecrow morning and that's the poem it just has this kind of like and another book that holly has read was spring and all by william carlos williams and pritchard kind of reminds me of that like he has this madness that's so hard to wrap your head around and then interspersed throughout are these very delicate almost fragile moments of like crystalline lyric beauty that's like a bit mysterious but also very easy to grasp and i'm just a Mm. huge advocate of his work and again i highly recommend that if you just google nh pritchard eclipse or something like that it'll shoot you to these facsimiles it's very very cool yeah, that's, you know, these little cells of words and phrases, the way you read it, I don't know what it looks like on the page, but it feels like all these little cells floating out, these individual, you know, little tidbits of language, these little concentrations of letters. Um, it really does sort of speak to poetry as a charged element, a language, I mean, as a charged element. You mm-hmm. know, we take a couple little words, pay attention to the word itself, to the phoneme, link a couple, be patient. You know, he's, it sounds very experimental, very um, audacious. Yeah, it is. It's experimental yet it grabs you. You know, it isn't like, it isn't pointy headed. And and that's a very tricky Mm -hmm. thing to do to kind of blow someone's mind without being pointy headed about it. And he's one of the best as far as that goes, as far as I'm concerned um let's 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 keep the train rolling todd let's let's hear number one number one all right number one i this miles pointed me to this person so she was new to me um her name is joyce monsoor monsoor i hope i'm saying that right you ever heard of joyce monsoor i have not i'm glad to hear that paul because now you have uh she was a uh french egyptian poet a jewish egyptian poet um, born in the 30s, 1930s, died in the 80s, uh, surrealist. And um, she wrote a lot about the body. Um, I've heard, I've, I've been reading up on her a lot the last couple of days. And there's a great article. Um, I don't know if it's in the rumpus maybe, but they say something like the macabre erotics of Joyce Monsoor. And who doesn't want to read about macabre erotics, man? So... I'm just going to share a little bit of this obscurity on the left, if Please I may. Do. And this is translated, Please so do. keep that in mind. It's translated from All right, obscurity French, on the left. Okay. French, yeah. Egyptian, you know, originally born in London, but of Egyptian Jewish parents okay. and moved to Got France. Um, very trippy human being. Why do my legs encircle your neck? Sticky, tied, dark blue bouffant, monotonous vestibule of a laughing creek. Christianity's white olives. Why should I wait in front of a closed door, supplicant, t- 
timid, torrid bass fiddle, have children, swallow rare vinegars on your gums, the tenderest white spotted with black. Your penis is softer than a virgin's face, more irritating than pity, feathered tool of an unbelievable noise. Adieu, au revoir, it's over, goodbye. The envy of the fantastic wilted blossoming will return, livelier, more violent, mauve candies of devoted swoons, pressing and paralyzed, vehement afternoon nightmares without you. That's fucking kick-ass. I, I want to hear all your thoughts on this, but I want to ask you a question real quick, Todd, because your, your reading kind of remind me of a phenomenon that I've experienced, which is uh, there's been many times where I read a poem written by a woman, and it's a bit odd for me to be reading it, for it to be coming through my voice, because it's like she's writing about shit that like I myself would never write about or whatever. Um, yet the experience of doing that for me is like, it's like a weirdly special in charge experience where it's like, you know, I mean like it's somewhat cliche or even corny to say that like reading someone's poem is like letting their like soul breathe through you temporarily or something like that. Yet when like you do read a poem and it is coming from a place uh, of experience that's so different from your own. I feel as though it like enlarges who I am temporarily and maybe leaves a bit of a lasting transformative imprint. Does this experience resonate with you at all? Because when you read that poem, I was very sort of struck by how it sounded so much like you yet nothing like you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I have to believe that I, you know, like you, I've devoted so much of my, energy, my time, my life, my love, um, to the art form. And so I don't often think of it in those terms, but as soon as you started saying it, I, I was like, holy shit, man. I mean, I just, I just read for the first time ever. I read this poem aloud written by a woman who's been in the ground for, uh, you know, 50 years or whatever. Um, and how cool to carry that forward, to take that pitcher of water into the 21st century and who knows this podcast dude it, it could be bouncing around the globe and and for uh, time yes. immemorial man so yeah i mean you know there's that great thoreau line um about language and it's something like um you know language shall be breathe it's made of the very breath of life itself not to be carved from marble or stone right it's so mm -hmm. intimate um and that is amazing. Agreed, dude. Um, and I'm reading it the way I probably read poems, but it's her language. And, you know, it's barely punctuated, so I don't even really know how to read it, except as I'm reading it, I'm thinking about maybe a faint narrative of frustrated love mm. or lust and um, of some values that come out, of, of some uh, rebellion, of um, beauty, of sensuality, you know, just trying to sort of hang it all together in a sensible way with no training whatsoever, except a training of years of reading poems and listening to people reading Absolutely. poems, right? Um, so, yeah, what what other thoughts do you have about this poem, about this poet? Let's, let's hear the fucking riff, my man. 
Yeah. You know, man, I, I love that poem, that title obscurity on the left. I mean, I, I don't know if we're talking about, and this is what poetry does. It layers all these possible readings, right? So are we, my first thought was we're talking about politics. Are we talking about like the left wing obscurity? Do we mean a lack of clarity of vision? Do we mean the different factions that are vying for, for uh, you know, a progressive voice? And I mean, she could have none of those ideas in mind, but that's some of the cool things that come out in writing workshops where you get to hear how readers respond to your work as they bring their own histories, they bring their own passions, they bring their own um, reading to your reading and so on. So anyway, I like that title. And then, you know, I love a, a I love questions in poems. I'm always telling my students, they're asking them, what, ask some questions in your poem. P questions and poems are cool. Like, you know, especially if they're not answered, they sort of hang there and they have this really interesting tension that never gets resolved. Um, so why do my legs encircle your neck? And that's great, right? It's this moment. Are we talking about, you know, is there some action going on, right? Um, sticky tie, dark blue bouffant. And that's interesting. I mean, it just feels a little, it feels, um, it's kind of visceral and it's audacious, but it's also a little old fashioned, right? Like dark mm. blue bouffant, monotonous vestibule of a laughing creek. Now we're really getting weird. I mean, she is so nimble in that classic surrealist vein of just bouncing from these associations. Um, and the interesting thing is when you take these two things that have no connection, like a vestibule and a creek, and you mash them together it creates a kind of um, language fission where cells are, you know, sort of interpenetrating or where energy is getting, is bursting open. Christianity's white olives. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> I can't claim to, to understand, but I think what a kick-ass phrase that is. Christianity's white olives. It seems kind of apt. I mean, what does that mean? They're like, not they're flavorless. They're, <laughs> they're unnatural. Yeah. I don't know. It is. <laughs> And then she's waiting in front of a closed door. I mean, this is the classic, like, romantic, you know, sort of um, angst, right? Like, what am I? Open the door, you motherfucker. Like, what? Supplicant, timid, torrid, bass fiddle. Uh, have children. She swings that in there, right? And she's kind of slamming domesticity. Um, she's yearning. She's pissed off. Your penis is softer than a virgin's face. Who's ever made a, a, a metaphor like that, dude? That, no one I've ever read. Is a lot of <laughs> a lot of sparks flying off that metaphor. That's a kick-ass metaphor. Um, no, nah, dude. This, I mean, I agree. Everything you're saying, it, it's very resonant. This is a very passionate. Um, this poet sounds fucking badass. And I, I want to say the thing you said about asking questions in poems, I, I think that's really good advice. I remember when I was a younger poet in our writing group that we do, the kind of question of questions was this sort of ongoing debate. Like, is it valid to ask a question in a poem? was something that we discussed a lot for, for a while until eventually we arrived at the conclusion that, yes, <laughs> it is in fact valid to ask questions in poems. <laughs> and in fact, it is awesome. It's very important, but I feel like that's the kind of advice that like a young poet, I feel like asking a question, a poem is the type of thing that is like portrayed as off limits in a poem by someone with like kind of a retrograde, retrograde or tired vision of poetry. So I don't know. I think it's really cool that you put that out there for your, for mm -hmm. your students. And also um, the poet Ann Boyer, she has a really cool line that I believe is um, until the revolution comes, Every poem is nothing more than a series of unanswerable questions. 
or, or something like that. And I don't know. I just think that that's kind of a, mm-hmm. a beautiful way of thinking about like asking questions as like, really like we're in this kind of broken world and all we can do is ask questions until something gets fixed, you know? Um, so yeah, I don't know. Do you have any final kind of parting thoughts on this poet that you wanted to throw out or thoughts at all? Um, you know, maybe it's more to your point. Um, Tilly Olson, who, you know, I think lived at Omaha for many years. Um, great writer. The, the famous story, I stand here ironing. She wrote a book called, um, silences. And I mean, dude, it's a 200 page book about the many Mm -hmm. ways writers get silenced. And in particular, she's talking about how women get silenced by domestic arrangements, by children, by, by husbands, by patriarchy, by fellow logocentrism, et cetera. But I think it speaks to all of us, you know, the greatest sort of threat to us as writers is silence, um, is stopping, is, is, And I think the point about questions is a good one. We can so often feel, as you said, retrograde authority figures um, or our own self-consciousness and the relationship between those two things can really serve to silence us, right? Like I, so many times I'll write some lines and be like, these are so dumb. And it's like, man, you know, in what way is that helpful? I know that you're trying to make work that has value, is interesting, is original, is, is, um, you know, compelling. And, you know, there is merit to some objective discussion of aesthetics, obviously a rich subject, but at the same time, if you're using it to silence yourself or one person is using it to silence another, then it's no longer helpful. So, you know, we don't want to all write the same poems. We don't want to, you know, paint the same paintings and so on, sing the same songs. So I think um, somehow I wrote a lot of short stories in college and then I kind of quit writing them. And I tried picking up fiction again a couple of years ago. And for some reason I told myself it, it was passe to write in the first person. Like what, where the fuck did I get that idea? Like that's insane, man. But somehow I don't, I can't blame anyone really, but myself, but I was so self-conscious about writing fiction and how bad I was at it and how there's so many people who are better at it that I told myself I couldn't write in first person, that that was amateurish. And that is just patently untrue, dude. Like there is nothing wrong with writing in first person. It's as valid as any other point of view. So um, I think we need to sort of in a way be on guard against these many forces, both within and without that want to silence us and make us question our every move as writers and And as people. Right. I've been thinking about this. this Well, cause like, I feel like that's a poetry thing too. And it's not as, it's not as operative as it used to be, but the idea that using the word I in a poem, that that's kind of off limits. That was a very present idea when I started writing poems. Like it, it was almost suspect to, have a line that's like i feel like shit like that would be like weird like you like the idea would be that you should find some more poetic way to express that feeling rather than just like putting it out there point blank but that's total fucking bullshit it's total fucking nonsense and um oh man i had a great thought that i was gonna get to but i've come well, let me say, I mean, wh- hopefully that'll come back to you, but you and I exchanged poems a few times and, and worked with one another. And you were so helpful with me too, of, of deprogramming me because, you know, I'd have like a poem where the last two words rhymed or there'd be a, a couple rhymes in the middle and it would never rhyme again. And 
And I'd be like, dude, is that a problem? Like, I think it probably has to rhyme the whole way or rhyme not at all. And you're like, no, dude, you can fucking rhyme <laughs> twice and never rhyme another time. And that's okay. <laughs> you know, if it serves the poem yeah, yeah. Uh, and whatever that even means, like, you know, and you were just really a great presence, a great influence in saying, you know, just liberate yourself, dude. These chains of expectations, it doesn't have to be a rhyming sonnet or free verse. Like it can be a fucking unrhymed sonnet you know it can be rhyming free verse and you know that seems obvious but whatever it is i think probably it's just the anxiety of being judged um that that really muzzles us and and i would say the same about the i i write a lot of poems for my and i'm often sort of saying you can't say i in this poem dude you you can't say you you know i'll I'll, sometimes i'll tell my students you get to use the word i three times in this poem that's due next week you know um, well, it's one of those things. Or go ahead, sorry. Please, please. It's one of those things where it's like I, I've had the experience a few times. And I joke about it often. Where like I've done, I go to an open mic, I read a poem, and then some like fucking like fifty-eight year old dude will like sidle up to me later and be like, "Hey there, you ever written a poem without the word I in it? That's my challenge to you." And it's like, well, actually, you fucking asshole. I wrote <laughs> poems without the word I in it for fucking six years. And then I finally became comfortable using the word I, and now my poems kick ass. And my poems were fucking deader before because of jerks like you, you fucking creep. (laughs) Get out of my fucking hair. But, like, the point I wanted to make before, and, you know, I really appreciate your kind words about, um, you know, I I do try to help people liberate themselves in terms of, like, their own expectations about their writing. And with the rhyming thing specifically, I got to say, is my buddy Justin Fife. He just kind of started rhyming in poems at one point, just kind of like casually. And it was one of those things where like once he did it, it seemed weird that I ever thought you couldn't do it. You know what I mean? But just having someone mm-hmm. model it as a reality, it, it just kind of transforms your your vision of what the possible is. And that's such an important thing that artists can do for one another. But the the point I was trying to make earlier is that like a lot of these ideas we have about oh, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do that, are like, um, they are like coming from reactionary uh, authorities on high, but it's also like an internal guard against, in my experience, exploring things that we're afraid to explore. For a while, one of my like writing prompts was like, um, write the stupidest poem you can think of, like the mer- the most meritless, dumb poem. And I would find that I would go in directions that I was just uncomfortable with. Like, that's all it was, is I was just, oh, I'm uncomfortable writing about my sexuality. Oh, I'm uncomfortable writing about um, my family. I'm uncomfortable writing about this other thing. And it wasn't because those things are bad to write about. It's just because, like, you're actually getting at something raw. You're you're hitting closer to bone, and that's a scary fucking thing. So I feel like a lot of people just devise all these rules to prevent themselves from doing that, from hitting close to bone. And I get it, because it is fucking hard. But at the same time, I think it's essential if you're going to be an artist to like really push yourself as far as you can. And sure, maybe nothing will come of it. Maybe it'll be total pointless. But sometimes you get some real, real nasty, wild, crazy shit figured out through doing that. And I think it's super fucking important. Agreed, man. Agreed. I could say more, but I know you got a third poet for me. I want to learn. I want to hear it. All right. All right. Have you ever heard of... Bill Cassidy. Uh, don't think so. I know there's that f- fiction writer, Neil Cassidy. No, no relation. I got nothing. 
Bill Cassidy is a poet who I discovered on Octopus, the the now defunct web mag. And one of the one of the issues they had a uh, eight poets sort of choosing eight young poets type of thing. Um, and the poet Matthew Rohrer, he chose the poet Bill Cassidy for his sort of like person that he was going to sh- shout out and highlight. And because Bill had been a student of his at the new school and I was really uh, taken by this dude's work. And I'll, I'll just read a few lines from that octopus selection. I think, although this might've been from another website, but it's called, the poem is called there, 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 there. It's October and it's almost June. You go out drinking by yourself for something to do that fantasy of getting head without having to spark a conversation. It hasn't happened to you yet. New York hasn't blown to smithereens either. And that's just like a, a, that's like a a fifth of that poem. But um, I don't know. I was just really excited by this dude's work. And I remember, I can't remember exactly what Rohr said, but it was something that like, this is a poet who's like completely at ease doing what he does. And that's such a rare thing in poetry. And I was pretty young at the time. And it was very resonant to me. And this was like one of the first poets who was like roughly a peer who I became like super interested in, who wasn't like widely known or whatever. And I would read his work and I would try and keep up with it. And it was one of those things where um, the dude, he passed away in the early part of the 2000, 2010s, excuse me. And it was just like a very sad moment because I was like, oh, I always figured we're both poets. We'd probably cross paths one day. And it's always so special when you meet someone and you're able to, you know, give them props for the work that they've done. And when this dude died, I was just like, oh, man, what a fucking tragedy. And it's been one of those things where since then his work is just kind of it wasn't ever like out there that much, but it's really disappeared. And the stuff that's online is harder to find. And the stuff that was in print was just sort of in like these random journals that were circulated just a little bit, like a couple of poems of his that I have access to were published in like an ugly duckling press journal called six by six. So, um, I put out a, a zine of his work and I thought maybe you would have like heard of him because I had put out this zine of his stuff. I couldn't remember if you ever picked it up or not, but it like, it contains all of the poems of his that I've ever found as well as like a poem by Matthias Felina, a poem by Heather Crystal and a poem by um, Matthew Zapruder, kind of like sort of like little elegies that they wrote for him. Mm. And um, and then an essay that I wrote sort of exploring my own feelings about his work. And like this is a dude who writes about um, feeling fucked up, you know what I mean? But he also writes about using and about um, sort of the highs, the lows, the heavenly blows of that lifestyle in a way that's very immediate, very accessible and it captures both the like the the beauty and the horror of it. And um, I don't know. I just think that he's such a important poet to me personally. And it angers me that his work is just like, I think very likely to just kind of disappear forever. And, and that's such a strange thing about poetry is it's like, there are the great poets whose work sort of stands the test of time or whatever. But there's just as many poets who are just as great who just kind of vanish into the ether because of like circumstance and happenstance, you, you know, and uh, it, it's both like terrible and tragic, but it's also kind of 
beautiful in a way where it's just like here's this guy he wrote poems for this span of time and he had a huge impact on the lives of the people around him but then he passed away and then that's what it is that's passage you know so i don't know this is a guy who i really advocate for and i hope that his work finds an audience in the future but i don't know if it will um but he's a fucking he's one of the most important poets to me and I always try to make a point of shouting him out whenever I can. So when you when you offered up like three poets you've never heard of, I was like, well, just another chance for me to to talk about how great Bill Cassidy is because he really is fucking the best. I love that. I love that. And I mean, you know, it's it's uh, with, that you meet that stranger out there and their words, which are their own, but which build that bridge to you, which create that dream that you can dream with them. That is priceless. And, uh, you know, I, you and I both probably read a hell of a lot of poetry and, and, um, you know, I, I find a lot of poems boring. I find a lot of TV boring, a lot of movies, boring, a lot of people boring. I mean, a lot of shit's boring, man. <laughs> I mean, I still love poetry. It doesn't make me love it less. I still like TV or whatever music videos, but when you read one that, you know, sort of shakes you or, or that shows you what's possible or that reminds you what it is to be fully human or whatever it is, man, it's, uh, it's just a fucking priceless and it shores you up against that horror that you talked about beauty and horror. It gives you the beauty and it gives you the horror too. And it lets you know that, uh, huh, like the quarantine alone together, baby. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very that's very uh i i agree with what you're saying man so um todd you have a book out it's called mass for shut-ins um let's just dive in how about you read this poem you will be held accountable and then we can we can yak it up you will be held accountable as a child i believed in things whale song astral projection mx missiles Christians. The margarine container said its own name. My father, scared, hit me. My mother smoked endless Salem's, pointing her eyes everywhere but at him. I wish I could meet the man who invented the plastic substance known as Nerf. It gave our whole block a reason to live. My friends lined up on the lawn and I'd smash through them. Then I'd line up and they'd smash through me. Somebody always got hurt, but history taught us to expect it. We also played Kill the Man, which entailed killing the man with the nerf. Some kids called it Smear the Queer. Carbon-based bipedal life forms with names like Doug, Greg, and Bob. We had Corvettes on our t-shirts, loved candy and war, though both hardened our arteries. We all evolved into chunky adults posing in sandy places, celebrating our offspring and their middling successes. As for me, I have no children. I am a happily married former junkie who eschews meat. Something else to brag about? My wife and I once found ourselves blushing in a Vancouver elevator with a boy, his mom, and Robin Williams. I wanted to thank him for Mork, who made it possible for me in fourth grade to be weird and to draw a poster in which Mork mourned by a polluted stream, his hands balloon-like, crying. I ached to speak, but elevators are awkward. It was quiet for a few floors as his son, 
hair dyed several colors, wobbled like a little drunk. Robin loomed behind him and said in a robotic voice, You will be held accountable. We exited giggling. The doors closed and they rose toward their dark future. Very cool, man. Thank you for reading that. Um, it's a really great poem. It's really beautiful. It's really intense. It's really fun. Uh, you know, I, I want to hear your thoughts on the poem, but I also want to push you off off your balance, interrupt your usual sh- spiels or whatever, and just kind of put some stuff to you, see what you think. Um, there's a line in this one, I wish I could meet the man who invented the plastic substance known as Nerf, as well as I am a happily married former junkie who eschews meat. And and those two lines, they, they strike me kind of as like almost quintessential Todd Father lines. They have a certain kind of m- music to them, the way the words sound and come together. They're conversational yet elevated, and they kind of build to a little, uh, a little bit of a little surprise, kind of like a fun surprise almost. Particularly with the Nerf line, like the man who invented Nerf, uh, the substance known as Nerf. <laughs> it's just so, um, it's such a little like declarative, fun flash of a moment. And I don't know, like, what do you think of this theory of mine that these are kind of like quintessential? Todd lines like how how does that how's that (laughs) well I'm honored I'm honored to be quintessential to have anything quintessential you know (laughs) I I was thinking earlier today I'm like this is a tough time to be talking about poetry because I it's been about three weeks of struggle you know but um so you always kind of I think our fear at least mine is it's over I got nothing left in the well it's fucking dry dude you know so it's nice to know that at one point I had a quintessential move but uh but that sounds fair you know um i think uh, um i like poems that swerve you know um i Mm. i like cohesion in art but i also like surprise i like perversity i like whim and whimsy and fancy and so on and so um i love in a poem when when we're thinking it's going to be one thing and then it becomes another. And I really do like moments of um, heightened personal uh, intensity or confession that you don't expect, you know? So, um, and I liked it the way you talked about it as being sort of ordinary, but a little heightened. I I love rhythm and alliteration a lot. So, um, and I just, I like to kind of praise weird shit, you know? And, um, I never really thought I wanted to meet the man who invented Nerf, but I was writing this poem, you know, I was writing it in bed one night, some couple years ago. And I was just kind of journaling and I, I was like, I'm not even writing poems. I'm writing noems because the problem with writing poems is you're like, fuck, I'm writing a poem. Shit. Now I'm in trouble. You know, like <laughs> this is not yeah. going to be easy. It's not going to go well. And so I made up my cute little word noem and I'm like, I'm just going to write noems. So it's almost like a journal entry. But of course it had the kind of cadence of a poem and it had the associative leaps of a poem. So anyway, um, yeah, this was a weirder one than I don't really, it's weird because it does things I do in a lot of poems, but it feels different from a lot of my poems too. Like I don't, I don't do short lists. I don't do incomplete sentences a lot. Whale song, astral projection, MX missiles. And I often don't, 
I don't know. It's strange, my man. I'm probably not being super articulate at this point, but, uh, and then as far as the other one, um, that second line that you pointed out, um, I am a happily married former junkie who eschews meat. <laughs> that was you know, the happily married former junkie. Sounds great. I mean, that's the kind of thing I would say. I love little confessional lines and, you know, I was writing this when I was a year sober or two. And, um, it was really important to me that I was still married because that was a close call and that I was sober. That was a very close call. Um, but you know, she's me like fucking a dude. I haven't had a steak since like 2001, dude. I'm fucking proud of that shit. And I think that, um, you know, this is, this is the context, right? Like let's, let's celebrate right now. You know, um, I, I've got, I got some good shit going on. I don't eat meat, dude. And I'm not, a, well, I'm not using fuck. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because like, um, the, the two things I am happily married. I'm a former junkie. Those are, those are such proud declarations in, in the context of this line. Now your oeuvre or whatever, it definitely goes into the depths of all that stuff. But like who eschews meat, it, it's sort of like, a, it's sort of like you're, yourself you're being a bit uh funny like you're just kind of like mm-hmm. you're framing you're downplaying your commitment to not eating meat in this like sort of playful way because mm-hmm. like reading that line you wouldn't think oh this guy hasn't had a bite of meat since 2001 <laughs> you would think oh this is one of those like guys who like tries not to eat meat but then does like every few weeks or so so i, I don't know I, I like that again it sort of is this weird element of surprise but it's also almost like a kind of secret surprise that the that the reader might not have full access to but that informs your experience of the poem in like a interesting way yeah and the shoes i mean it kind of sounds like choose <laughs> it's yeah, got choose yeah. in it so right i mean i was i was sort of saying it straight but when i was talking about it but in the context of the poem it is kind of playful and it is, you know, when I was writing this poem, I was wanting to sort of um, have a little dalliance and then, you know, advance and retreat, advance and retreat. Mm-hmm. And I think that you get that with the Robin Williams thing too, where one minute it's like, wow, how cool. We're hanging out with Robin Williams and he's joking around. And then it's like, fuck, dude fucking killed himself, you know? Right. So, uh, so, and I think looking at childhood, it sort of does the same thing there too, right? Like, oh, cool. We're little boys playing with nerfs, but it's like, yeah, but we had named our, like these other kids named this, this game was super violent and other kids used a homophobic slur to, to name it. And, and we lived in the fucking shadow of possible nuclear annihilation. And how can any <laughs> of us stay sane? And dads are beating yeah. up moms and Jesus fucking Christ. This is a hellscape. Yeah, yeah. So let's kind of move on to that because you just kind of touched on the two main parts of the poem that I wanted to speak about. Um, can you just give me a quick r- breakdown of like the mechanics of your version of the game, Smear the Queer or, or Kill the Man? Like how the fuck did the game work? Here's how the game worked, dude. It was simple. It was beautiful. It was terrifying. I mean, you, one kid gets the ball. I don't remember how we started. I, maybe we'd put it on the ground and whoever grabbed it, you get the ball and you start running and every other kid, whether it's four of them or 10 of them just tries to tackle you. Um, and you're breaking tackles and you're dodging. There's no touchdown. There's no goal except to keep running. Uh, eventually, as soon as you get tackled, whoever tackled you gets the ball and they start running until they get tackled and then so that person picks up the ball and starts running 
So, um, <laughs> was, okay. is that, that how is, you played it? That is, oh yeah, I played that. I, that is the exact game that I played that was also referred to as Smear the Queer. We never called it Kill the Man, only Smear the Queer. Um, the, the nerf, I think, is what made me curious because when I think nerf, I often think of like the nerf gun, like the dart gun or something like that. Uh, the nerf football, I think of that too. But it might be a slight kind of, I feel like when you were a, a youth, some of these like more advanced nerf toys weren't as full, as fully realized as they would later become <laughs> right. in, the, in the heyday of that the 90s fact. toy era. Um, but yeah, let me, because I've also written about Smear the Queer, and it is kind of fucking crazy that like we, I played that game every week, literally after church. I would go to church, we would eat the fucking cookies or whatever, and then I got in the lawn and play Smear the Queer for an hour. And, and that's just such a bizarre juxtaposition. And I didn't go to some like super conservative church by any means, but nonetheless, it is still very weird. Uh, and I've thought I've thought a lot about it, how fucked up it is, and I've thought a lot about how. And I feel like you're part of this generation too, where like the masculine archetype for like my entire youth and adolescence was basically like the homophobic bully. Like that was like kind of the only way presented to be like a man that like was really clear. Yep. Uh, any other way of being a, a man was sort of like fuzzy or obscured, but like the, the, the homophobic bully was such a like realized figure in like everyone's imaginary. And it's such a fucking drag that that was such a, such a central idea of like how to be for so much of my life. And I think now about how much it's changed and I'm just like, man, I'm glad that these kids who are growing up now don't have to like live under the weight of that because it's so fucking oppressive and the game smear the queers, but one of many manifestations of it. And it's, it's, it's terrifying yet that game is fucking fun. And I like loved playing it and exclusively had a good time playing it and when i think of the name of the game i feel this cringe this ah but when i think of like the experience of playing that game i feel nothing but warmth you know what i mean Mm. so like i mean what do you make of this like how how, i feel like you do a good job of sort of drawing out these contradictions yet it's such a potent force in so many people's lives i'd love to hear you talk about it more yeah, I mean, I, I think you obviously touched on a lot of it right there. I, it's that juxtaposition of innocence and cruelty, of delight and uh, and oh, malevolence. Um, not in the game, but certainly in the term and in and in those models of masculinity, which, as you said, were exclusively toxic, really. Um, and as you say, have been corrected, or you know, the tide has turned. But I mean, the president, our current president is that guy is that homophobic bully right i mean he's right there like the guy who we all looked up to or maybe not looked up to but just didn't know any other option i mean he's in charge and he's got a lot of people who who really are glad that the old ways are back but i don't know anyway um it was an amazing game dude it you know when you could break some tackles and run for a while you just felt like a king you know it was like this is living, man. I feel alive, man. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm a stud. I'm Tony Dorsett, dude. I'm unstoppable. Um, 
this is not, this is interesting too. I want to say we called it kill the man, but I knew some kids who nearby kids who called it smear the queer. And I was always like, I always thought that was like a class based thing. I was, I always thought that's what the kind of poor kids called sure. it. I don't know if that's valid. Um, I would love to talk to a folklorist. I'm sure there's been an essay written or two about this exact game. And I'd love to know. Yeah, no, it's true. Well, I'm like, it's interesting. Cause like the, the the guys I played that game with were not bullies. Like they were like they were like good dudes who like came from pretty good families and who had pretty good like one of the kids his dad was a fucking doctor. So like they're doing just fine. You know what I mean? Yet like we lived in such a stunted small town conservative cultural environment that like even like the the good kid who's nice, who's like a doctor's kid even he has no choice but to refer to this game in this way smear the queer but but the thing i was thinking about while you're talking is like it's interesting because it kind of like it kind of like subverts itself in this weird way because like you said when you are the figure with the ball and you are um evading destruction you that is when you feel best playing the game when you become like quote the queer or or whatever who is like overcoming this like obstacle that is trying to destroy you. And and that's such a, maybe that's why, I mean, not to over intellectualize it too much, but like maybe that's part of like feeling warmth when thinking back about the game is it kind of like subtly and subversively like models a, uh, you know, like fuck the culture. Like you're going to feel strongest when you are like comfortable with like being weird or whatever. And uh, I don't know, that, that's kind of like just a half-baked little theory I'm just tossing out that, that I thought when you were talking about it. Do you have any other sort of thoughts about this, this game or this sort of youthful experience that you're, that you're riffing on? Well, I, I mean, I think there's also um, a sort of socially acceptable touch going on, you know? I mean, all the kids are like sure. grabbing each other, ripping each other, hugging each other, grounding them, driving them into the earth. I mean, you know, it's a way to sort of, I mean, really be in very intimate kind of profound percussive contact with one another um, without risk of, of being, you know, shamed. Right. I mean, it's so I, you know, I don't know if that's just kind of armchair psychologist talk, but um, you know, my, like the dudes on my street, I grew up in kind of, you know, lower middle-class suburbia and, uh, there would be no hugging, you know, I mean, there, there was only one bully and he wasn't even maybe that bad, but there would, no one was going to be hugging, dude. There was a casual homophobia, you know, that it wasn't there always, but, but then it was always there. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Oh no. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, in sports, like smear the queer is like a precursor to sports. And I mean, sports, I think are pretty much unarguably, a site of like sublimated homoerotic desire. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's sports games where you're touching other dudes butts like all the time. <laughs> like that's like kind of the point of sports is like you can t- comfortably like just slap your buddy's ass or whatever, because he had a good shot or whatever the fuck. And, and the people that I have uh, known over the years who are men who are the most comfortable with like a kind of like, I, I wouldn't call it erotic, but like a, somewhat erotic physical intimacy with other men they're all athletes mm. like it's just an interesting thing where like that kind of touch 
is allowed within the context of sport, which is like presented as this like hyper masculine activity. Mm. And that's such an, such an interesting play between those two things. Very interesting. Yeah. So, um, to just drift a little from that, but not too far. Uh, you know, I wrote about being in fourth grade here and loving <clears throat> Mork, uh, that TV show Robin Williams was in. I had a friend in fourth grade. <clears throat> he was this big kid, this big kind of soft kid. I, I And I just thought he was the neatest dude. I loved him. I thought he was like cuddly. You know, I mean, I just love the guy. I felt such affection for him. And um, I remember one day in class, we were all like, on the floor in a circle and he and I were leaning against the chalkboard kind of below the chalkboard and I rested my head on his shoulder. Uh, and it was just this affectionate kind of puppy dog thing. And this, and he was fine with it. And this girl like kind of smirked, you know, she's like, Oh yeah, yeah. You know? And I was like, and I had to lift my head up. I was like, well, shit, I've been shamed. I can't show affectionate physical contact with this buddy of mine. And, um, I, I, there's not any profound revelation there, but it is funny. I, all these years later, it's really stuck with me. I mean, I loved that kid. I was like, you're the greatest. And it, it certainly wasn't erotically charged. It was just like, you're my boy. I love you, man. I'd like your cuddly little cutie. And I want to put my head on your shoulder, <laughs> you know, yeah. but, uh, but I couldn't have it dude in that heteronormative hellscape in which we were raised. It was not going to be possible. And those moments, I mean, like I've, I have friends who have had kids and whatnot and I've like, hung out while they're playing at the playground or whatever. And, and there's this weird point where like when they're like four or something, kids are very like affectionate towards each other. And it's almost like, it's almost surreal to watch just like how comfortable kids are holding each other's hands and like kissing each other and like all kinds of stuff. It's just part of it. But then at some point like mm-hmm. that, that is no longer part of it. It's like cut off. And the, the moments of, um, that cutting are these kind of strange specific occurrences where it's just like someone shoots you a look and then like, it's almost like kind of biblical. It's like the, the, the gar it's like eating the tree of knowledge. All of a sudden you know to feel shame about a thing that's perfectly natural. Whereas before you had no understanding that you should feel shame about that. And it's so intense and it's so powerful and it's just kind of, I don't know. It's almost like, stupefying to uh contemplate but at the same time in this poem you know i mean you're talking to me here about sort of like uh not a weirdness but a type of intimacy that later became kind of considered weird yet like um the robin williams character mork he sort of like gave you an access to a new a new kind of weirdness that seemingly meant a lot to you because you you wrote about it here like what what was that sort of process like where it just says like uh, being weird is being kind of stolen away from you. New ways of being weird are, are, are sort of revealing themselves. Like, can you, can you talk about that? Yeah. You know, um, I've always probably had a pretty uneasy relationship with reality, uh, with um, convention, um, with sanity, you know, I mean, with industry, um, with respectability, uh, you know, I like to be likable and I like to be liked, but I also feel like a stranger in this world. I suppose those are things are true of most, most of us. Um, but you know, I'm an oddball and, uh, 
I'm not as odd as some, but I'm still pretty fucking odd. And, uh, you know, that's, I think what that show showed me and what Robin Williams showed me as goofy as that may sound. I mean, it, it showed me that, you know, that, that was, uh, that that was a good thing, that that was a powerful thing, that that was the thing people responded to with delight and joy and surprise and discovery. And, um, that is weirdness at its best. Um, it's innovative. Um, it's audacious, it's loving, it's compassionate, you know, it's a sense of discovery and so on. And so, uh, I remember this girl who would always say, you're so weird. And I'd be like, thank you. Thank you. God, thank you. Like there's, if I'm ever not weird, we got a fucking problem, man. (laughs) So, and I mean, that must just be, you know, most poets I know, frankly, are pretty fucking weird, man. I mean, we're weird in different ways. Um, but I would be hard pressed to think of a poet. I know a practicing poet who isn't weird. And on the other hand, I guess probably everybody's weird, right? I'm not going to claim some special status for us. I mean, if I really look at people, they're all pretty fucking weird, man. Um, but it was a weird that was, again, that was goofy and playful and, a, a you know, um, bit, a bit uh, pugnacious, a bit of a prankster and, uh, kind of a lovable loon, you know, and, uh, and, you know, the context of the poem, there's a lot of cruelty in the poem, whether it's a homophobic name of the game, whether it's fucking thermonuclear war, whether it's a angry father, whether it's um, just time and age and losing, you know, access to yourself and your childhood and so on. There's so much barbarity in this world um, and it barbarizes you. And so the push and pull of the poem is, um, trying to keep some connection to innocence, to exuberance, to delight in the context of things that would strip that from you. Yeah, no, that's fucking, I don't know. I really vibe with all this stuff you're saying. And uh, just to bring it back to this figure of Robin Williams, like th- this, this is a true story. I assume this anecdote about bumping into Robin Williams. Yep. Yep. Um, I don't know. I have a lot of questions about it, but like Robin Williams as like this central figure in your life who is like, Oh, there's power in like transgressing norms or whatever. Y- yet there's this central irony in this poem where like you, you're, you've been in, you're encountering him. The very man who who showed you <laughs> that it is okay to challenge these little norms, yet the norm of not talking to people in the elevator <laughs> overpowers your what I imagine to be gigantic, enormous desire to say something to Robin motherfucking Williams. And I think that's such a like delicious and sad but real irony that's like at the heart of this moment in this poem. And I feel like you really capture the moment, but is there anything more about this moment that like? didn't make it in the, like, I, I think about this a lot. Like when you talk to people about being a poet, sometimes like a thing they'll say is they'll be like, Oh wow. You got to write a poem about this. Like something that's like a particularly memorable or like legibly unique moment or whatever. And I would imagine if you were to like tell someone who knew that you were a poet. Yeah. I saw Robin Williams in the fucking elevator and he made a robot voice talking to his son. They would be like, (laughs) you got to write a poem about that, Todd, like wink, <laughs> like ding, ding, ding. So, so like you did write a poem about it and it is very like powerful and awesome and cool, but there is like a weird pressure to that where it's like, Ooh, how do I do justice to this moment 
via poetry. I don't know, I'm just kind of like throwing out ideas like slops, slops of food on a tray. But like, is there anything that you bounce off of with any of that? Oh, there's so much there. I mean, you know, I don't know what it's like for you, but for me, whenever anybody says you got to write about that, I'm like, well, you just fucking guaranteed I'm never going to write about it. And not, it's not out of like some cussedness. It's just, like I said, it's fucking hard for me to write. It's hard for me to keep writing and be productive and like what I'm writing. And so the pressure, you said the word pressure. And as soon as that pressure is applied, I mean, I fold like a fucking Italian offensive world war two man i got nothing dude like, i'm i'm fucking toast so i just wanted to make that comment and if somebody had said you got to write about meeting robin williams it just wouldn't happen like i would just not even try because i know i would fail um the reason it kind of worked here i don't know i was just writing to know him it wasn't a poem it was like a journal entry that you know, sort of moved, moved a little deeper than a journal entry might do. And then through a little bit of revision, you know, moved a little closer, but you know, I love that you pointed out that the weight of social expectation kind of won on, or, or we lost against it because we didn't say shit. Cause you don't say shit. Um, and actually the full story reinforces that even further. Um, and it points out that square culture, square mind, um, it's something you got to really be, it, it will fucking colonize the fuck out of you. And and so here's what I mean. Um, we were in Vancouver and, um, we're going back to our hotel and, uh, there's this family, this little trio in front of us and they've got this, you know, two adults and a kid and the kid is like really weird and he's bouncing all over and he's wobbling and he, he's just a goofball. And we're like, oh, this sucks. Like, we don't want to be on the elevator with them. Mm. So we fucking rush ahead of them to get to the elevator. And we're hitting the closed door, closed door. So they don't share our elevator because we're a couple of assholes. And they fucking reach it. And an armed big old hairy paw comes in. And the fucking door's open. And it's Robin Williams. <laughs> That's crazy, so, dude. <laughs> Which should have been in the poem probably, right? Well, but, you know, I mean, I was already like, I got too, and here it is, right? I have, there's too much Robin Williams in this poem. This is a poem that moves a lot. You can't have 10 lines of Robin Williams in this poem, which is absurd. But, you know, I mean, in a way, proportion is uh, is a concern in art, absolutely, right? Um, absolutely. Th- so I couldn't tell the whole story, but so we were, you know, both, we were being craven little weasels who wanted the elevator to ourselves and we didn't want to deal with this weird kid. But luckily, uh, for the sake of the poem and for us and for having a really interesting memory, there they were. And we all just kind of grinned at each other. Like they had to know we knew it was them because we're kind of sheepishly grinning and not saying anything. And then he uh, broke the weird silence. And yeah, and I never got to say, bro, I love you. But I was also, I've run into a couple people like him and I'm like, they hear that shit all the time. They don't need me to say it to get validated and probably it ultimately again comes down to pressure. Like I would feel this pressure. Like I'm a pretty eloquent dude, like to say something that they'd never heard. And instead I just be like, I really love more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I feel that like, you don't, you don't want to like impinge on someone's life or like bug them or annoy them or hassle them. But the other, on the other hand, like telling someone that you love them is always cool. Like even, even if the person's heard it a million times because they're a fucking celebrity, uh, it's still cool. 
and he's such a special person you know what i mean like he's so singular and unique and he has brought so much like i don't know so much of something to so many people's lives that just isn't available in the culture really other than through him yeah that he might be an exception to the to the rule but at the same time this story that you told of how you guys are like literally trying to avoid unbeknownst to you robin fucking williams and then he bursts <laughs> through the door quashing your plan like you have to immediately feel just absolutely like a total beavis having done that and that line you will be held accountable with the full story in mind it kind of does take on like a different uh it's weird because i feel like I feel like you're right. You don't need to tell the full story in the poem. The poem still succeeds without telling the full story. And furthermore, I think the kind of like that line, you will be held accountable. It almost like embeds the feeling of the whole story into the poem. Cause it, it does read kind of like Robin Williams is like playfully chastising you, uh, Todd Robinson for something. <laughs> and we don't know what it is, but like, you know that like you're going to be held accountable for something. And Robin Williams is the person who's telling it to you. And it is very like, <laughs> it's kind of a, it's like a mystery or a riddle. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I think the full story is kind of like present in the poem, even though you didn't tell it. And I agree with what you're saying about like, while I do have this kind of liberatory attitude, like, yeah, you can do whatever the fuck you want, man. Like, just do it, dude. Who fucking cares? At the same time, I'm the most like vestigious of motherfuckers when it comes to my own poems. Like I am truly like push. I'm trying to like, cut down as much as I can. And yeah, I think you do have the right amount of Robin Williams in this poem. Like I like that it's this sort of scattered poem and then it ends with like just an anecdote about Robin Williams. That's like, you give some space to that. But if it was like half the poem was about Robin Williams, it would be a little off balance maybe. So I don't know. I think, I think that's a good, a good point. Um, let me see here. I think, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts about this poem that you wanted to that you wanted to share? No, man. I think uh, that's pretty legit, right there. You know, once again, it's just sort of um, looking at this life that we lead. That you know, we take for granted. We take for granted all of it, um, and yet, in retrospect, especially childhood stuff. But in retrospect, it feels like it's really fucking profound. You know, the type of socks and shirts we wore and the games we played seem really profound. And it's always this balance between sublimity and uh, weightlessness, you know? Um, and so this was inspired maybe in part by going to look up people I haven't seen in, fuck, dude, 30 or more years and just and hooking up with them on Facebook and uh, saying like, oh, okay, so they work for an insurance company and they got a 15-year-old kid and, and they just are normal people <laughs> pretty much. Um and, you know, you want access to that charge of youth, of nostalgia, um, and you sort of get it and you sort of don't. And we're sort of profound and we're sort of just cogs in an infinitely large machine, right? And and um, that's not my revelation. I mean, better writers and thinkers than I have made it, but I think um, it's interesting and it's tragic and it's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, that's what we're always trying to sort of circle to try to make all those things, not to just say it's interesting, not to just say it's tragic, not to just say it's beautiful, but it is, of course, all of those things. 
it's beautiful and tragic that I have these people in my life and I don't anymore. And yet I can still see them. And yet I'll never run into them again and will never be eight years old or 10 running around Greg Brill's yard, beating the shit out of each other. And I'll never again be in an elevator with Robin Williams at the same time. I'll always be in that elevator. Cause I'll always yeah. remember it. You know, I mean, there it is. It's the fucking mystery of this, of existence. Um, writ small. Very well put Todd. Um, before we move on to the next poem, I, uh, just one, just two thought one, one I want to share something with you, but two the idea of gnomes gnomes really into that idea. I think that's a super useful idea to anyone who's struggling with writing. I've done a very similar thing for a while. I would write what I thought of as nothings. I'd be like, I'm not going to write a poem. I'm going to write nothing, but I would be writing words down. So it was something, but yeah, just removing that pressure for my writing to have some sort of poemic quality uh, really freed me up. And a lot of those nothings never went anywhere, but nonetheless, it got me writing again. It got the creativity flowing. So I think I think that idea of like the gnome is super fucking useful, and anyone can kind of turn to something like that and really get a lot out of it. Um, and since we're talking about Robin, you know, I, I have this book that I got from the library before everything closed called Clowns and Pantomimes, and it's like a hundred years old. But the prose is like really, really sharp. And when you were talking, I just kind of got reminded of this, this little, this little quote. And uh, here, here's here's just a bit from this book that I think you'll enjoy. More important still, there is a hint of explanation in young laughter. A baby startled by the bobbing up of a head behind a chair will catch its breath in fright before realizing joyfully whose the face is. The child, a little older, slithering plates off the ledge of its high chair, will wait a second in apprehension before chuckling with delight, or watching an uncle who growls and walks on all fours will spend some seconds in open-mouthed wonder before deciding that human quadrupeds are a joke. That momentary spasm of emotion is to be noted in adults as well. And I guess I like to think that in this moment with Robin Williams, when he said that thing to his son, you, you will be held accountable, you may have had sort of that momentary spasm where you felt like, well, what the fuck am I supposed to feel about this? And then like <laughs> that gave way to a more just kind of pure delight. And that sort of, mm. uh, that sort of connection between uncertainty and delight and even fear and delight. I feel like you really, you really get at in this poem. And I think it's a really important idea that, that kind of gets forgotten. Yeah. I, thanks man. I, I think that is uh, part of the intent and it is something I believe in. Um, I think that, probably almost always whatever our emotional or, or psycho spiritual intellectual states are, they're always shadowed by their opposite or by a, an under a subtext that maybe pushes against it. You know, I, maybe that's because I'm schizoid. I don't know, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm really interested in that. I mean, and as you said, I mean, the kid pushing his plate or as he said, the kid pushing his plate over the uh, table um, at once is like being a little shit and is being awesome is being an artist is being a clown. 
is risking, uh, you know, economic insecurity by wasting resources, right? I mean, it's all of those things. Um, so, and I think to me, the poems I really dig a lot um, are those, right? Are all those things like our exaltation and our mournful, our elegies and our fucking ludicrously hilarious, right? And, and you know, mm. we're not the first to point out uh, that humor and tragedy, I mean, that, that they're, they're kin and that, um, typically, and you know, you see it in Robin Williams life, right? I mean, the dude was kind of a disaster and a drug addict, but also a great humanitarian and hilarious and killed himself. And I mean, Jesus, right. It all coexists. It always all coexists. So sometimes one component gets magnified, um, or silenced or what have you, but, but yeah, I like, I like poems that really, that really do kind of keep us destabilized a little bit. Cheers. Prego. Marty. 
here. Oh, happy. So nice to meet you. Yes. Thank you for having me. Very nice. You can't clank, Larry? Well, I have to clank. Because it's a custom that people do, which is friendly and nice. What what does it mean, clinking? Cheers. Mm. You know, you pick up a knife like this, a steak knife, you get the urge, I do, that I want to, I want to stab, I want to stab with it. You know? Really? Yeah, because you pick up a baseball bat, you want to swing it. You, you pick up a tennis ball, you want to throw it. When you have a, a knife, you want to stab, do you not? Yeah. Huh? A little bit. Huh? You know what they should have? I should have. Stab, <laughs> stabbing range. Get yeah, here. a stabbing range where you stab, <laughs> you stab dummies. Wow. You feel good, you feel good. Where would the stabbing range be? In the valley. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Marilyn? The knife, you feel like stabbing somebody? Yeah, I feel like stabbing someone. This is fantastic food. Thank you. It really is. Yeah. I can never get my potatoes like that. Mm. Really good. What is this, tap? Yes, it is. No filter? No filter, tap water. Huh. Interesting. Surprised you don't have a filter. You have no filter. <laughs> That's. It's quite yeah. obvious. That's true. That's you a good thing. You just say whatever comes into your mind. Yeah. You don't really modulate your yeah. inner feelings at all. I'll yeah. Tell you. It's a good thing for me, but it's mm. a bad thing for water. Excuse me. I smell something burning. LD, mm. goldfish would commit suicide in this water. <laughs> yeah. Well, how come you didn't say that when she was there? You know, I'm uh, a guest. I don't know. You're like Fred McMurray in the Kane Mutiny when he and Ben Johnson Go to see the Admiral, then Fred McMurray gets cold feet and he backs out. That's a movie. This is real life. In real life, you're polite yes, to your hostess. Yes, of course, you're polite. And why wouldn't you be? There's a hostess and you have... That's pretty good. <laughs> sure, sure. The water, the water. By the way, I'm not the only one who can't stand it. Can't stand what? Well, Marty likes my water. See? You're really the only person who has a problem with the water. Yeah, it's just water. What are you so sensitive about? I want you to go. <laughs> Getting kicked out? The yeah, I, th- I think that I You're think... kicking me out? Yeah, I think you should leave. Uh, this is unbelievable. Okay. No, it was fun. It was fun. We, 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 we... It was not fun. No, it wasn't. I leave my knife, and I bid you adieu. I pick up a knife, I have an urge to stab. Well, I don't think that's a enough. stupid thing to say at a I dinner don't think it's table. So stupid. And then you I made thought... such a deal over the goddamn filter. Terrible water. But, but you didn't have to say anything about it. Hey, well, how could you not comment on water that's no. so bad? Okay. Like I've done everything I can to get her back. I sent her flowers, boom. Shredded on my doorstep. I mean, I don't know what to do. Oh! You ready Accidental text Accidental on text. purpose. Oh, my God. Tell him. Okay, here's what you do. You send me a text, but you accidentally send it to her on purpose. And in the text, you say something like, Hey, Larry, you were an asshole the other night. There's nothing wrong with our water. It's perfectly okay. Say anything you want. Curse me, anything. I don't care. Okay, I, I've never said this to you before. Yeah. You're brilliant. <laughs> Thank right. you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I invented this. So I invented this. Marty did it for me. 
Dear Larry, I can say anything I want. Anything. Larry, you were so out of line the other night about the water. Yes. If Marilyn didn't throw you out, I would have. Perfect. Look, she texted me right back. I love you. I know this is not meant for me. What a great man to stick up for me like that. Unbelievable. Thank you. Unbelievable. Huh? Brilliant. Times. Yeah. That Marilyn, am I right? It's got to be... Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Funk Man, would you, uh, would you mind passing the bread this way? Would you mind asking why? Marty, pass please pass me the bread. I'm famished. Marilyn, just for tonight, could you give him a, an exemption from the no talking rule that you've imposed? No. Just for tonight, so we can all have some fun. No. We're at the same table. Exemption denied. Okay. Hey, this is fun, huh? I'm having the time of my life. This is really a blast. Too bad we're going to have to leave early. I got to pack. San Francisco. And Jeff's driving me to the airport, you know. Think I was going to buy that bullshit accidental text? Oh, I love my wife so much and, and I'll miss the football game. Think I bought that accidental text on purpose? What, what is an accidental text on purpose? You send somebody a text pretending it to be to somebody else so they think they're reading a private text. But really what they're trying to do is give you the information that they want to manipulate you with. It's bullshit. <laughs> Did you send me an accidental text on purpose? <laughs> you did. That was a bullshit text. I, I don't remember that. Do you like my water? I, no, I really don't. I don't remember doing Do that. Do you like my water? I can't stand your water. I can't. I don't even know what to say. It's like I took a straw and put it in the frog's ass. It makes me sick. I want to barf every time I get near it. I can't stand the smell. I can't stand the color. And I cannot stand the taste. I can't take it anymore. Now I'm Miss Christopher Hitchens. I'm Miss Oliver Sacks. I'm Miss Poor Robin Williams. I'm Miss Sylvia Platt. Every morning's a desert And every night is a flood They say a party could kill me Well, sometimes I wish it would But I'll get strong enough I'll be man enough To keep myself in check Cause all my friends who flew to town Said that's what they expect But it's a, it's a little uncanny What they managed to do Made me admit to things I knew were never true Soon. 
Part 3 of Paul and Todd's Strange Conversation Glug 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 Arrivederci